Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. Welcome to The Nose. Um, we don't have a comedy intro today, partly because of the kind of week that it's been. And the only reason I'm mentioning this is it kind of plays in a little bit to what we're going to talk about at the beginning here of The Nose. When I say the kind of week it's been, I mean, we had to do some special programming about the James Comey firing. I think it's been a hard week on everybody. We're also getting ready for some special coverage because President Trump himself will be in New London on Wednesday. And <laughs> that's going to be a thing, too. And and I feel, and the reason I'm mentioning all this is I think everybody's a little strung out these days. I mean, it's been kind of a hard week to go through. Uh, and at times like this, uh, particularly when the summer movie season, such as it is, begins, uh, there are opportunities to escape. Um, and one of the opportunities to escape uh, has been in the Guardians of the Galaxy franchise, which is now two movies old. Uh, the new one is out right now. It's already made, I believe, half a billion dollars at the box office, uh, well on its way to a billion. Uh, it's going to be, obviously, another very successful blockbuster in the Marvel Universe. And before I, we, I introduce the panel and we get into this, let me just say, I know because I've dealt with two of them in my own life, that there are people who look at a movie like this and say, I'm not going to watch it. That's for other people. It has a talking weaponized raccoon. Uh, it has a lot of people who don't look like they're from planet Earth. There's something that looks like a talking tree, or in this case, a talking seedling. Um, I, this is not my kind of movie. And I've had to talk to people the two people closest to me, really, uh, into watching the first movie, I had to show them the Rotten Tomato scores and say, see, critics like this. See, it's got a, like, 90s, you know. Uh, and they both did, and they fell in love with it, and at least one of them has watched the first movie many, many times since then. So um, so I implore you, even if you're that kind of person, just stay with us for a second. And we'll try not to spoil anything. And when I say we, I mean Rebecca Castellani, a scholar of modern literature and an entertainment, entertainment impresario in the uh, glittering world of Collinsville. Uh, and Rand Richards Cooper, uh, a novelist, essayist, and critic. He's debuting a monthly column called In Our Midst in the June issue of Hartford Magazine. And James Hanley, co-founder of Cine Studio at Trinity College, which would be a great place to see a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy. Galaxy 2, um, but we didn't have that uh, chance. We had to go see it in first-run uh, settings. And uh, Rand, I'm going to have you kick things off for us um, as we were kind of emailing around about this. You had some very interesting ideas, and I, I know that you saw the first one in order to get ready for this show to, and to get ready to see the second one. So you've taken them all in one enormous gulp. And you had some very interesting things to say about the way this franchise kind of subverts conventional notions of epic heroic stories. Right. And I, I might have a little bit fallen into that category of people who perhaps expected not to like these movies. Um, and uh, when I watched Guardians 1, and I'm not even going to try to sum up the plot. Uh, <laughs> so there's no danger of a spoiler from me because I would be incapable of summing up the plot of this of this of these films except to say it's a it's a it's a great intergalactic struggle of good against evil. But that sounds a little a little familiar, doesn't it? Um, but it's the kind of movie that you'll like if in general you like films that turn back on themselves, on their own 
conventions in a kind of meta way and make fun of the conventions of the genre that they are enacting. So it's a kind of film that succeeds and it totally won me over, I will say. I watched the first half hour of it and I thought, oh no, it's just, it's just sort of snide, easy joking about, uh, about the genre of the epic heroic film. But it manages to simultaneously, constantly have fun with the uh, epic pretensions of this kind of movie and yet fulfill them so that it ends up being a really rousing fulfillment of the triumph of good over evil. That's as far as I'll go toward a spoiler. But it, it, what it does again and again is set up a certain way of behaving and talking that sounds heroic and then suddenly shifts into a totally different register of language. So you'll have the heroes, the five motley heroes, forming uh, a plan to defeat this great avatar of, of intergalactic evil, Ronan, uh, and one of the characters, one of the guardians who is the weaponized raccoon that, that Colin referred to, will say, suddenly after they make this solemn pledge, he'll say, you all happy now? Bunch of jackasses standing in a circle. So they, the characters constantly end up bickering. They, they become very sophomoric. And so we watching it are, are, are always jerked back and forth from one, one level of language to another. And that makes the fundamental irony of this film. And it, it, but it's, it's, it's totally about making fun of things. You have to like that. If you, if you like your, your, your epic heroism straight, you might not like this. And, and Rebecca, this, that to a, a degree is a good summation of the difference between the DC universe and the Marvel universe. And it's been that way since I was a child. Um, that one of the things that Stan Lee, who, by the way, has a tiny little cameo in this movie, the way he does in all of these movies. Um, uh, one of the things that he decided was, well, you don't have to take all of this stuff completely seriously. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I think that at your point, the difference between DC and Marvel, I think the Marvel movies to the large degree have done better in the box office because they're a little more lighthearted. They're a little more self-reflexive. What I really liked is it's starting to feel like you, the viewer, are in the movie and your criticisms are voiced by the characters. So just when it starts getting a little too much, a little, the alien's a little too absurd, there's a little bit too much explosion, somebody will say something in the film to that point. And there you are as the audience member, suddenly your position is being discussed in the characters of the film. I love that, you know, from the... Uh, the last Avengers film, and they've got the new Spider-Man. He's just like geeking out in the way we would all be geeking out if we were suddenly thrown in with the Avengers. And I, I love that we're kind of moving towards that. I do wonder how much of this we can do before it becomes as worn out as, say, a straight superhero movie at this point. I do think there's going to be, you know, a meta too far at some point. Yeah, James, I know you had some thoughts about that. Like, how far can they go with this? Yeah, I think it is kind of a tightrope, but I, I found it a very exhilarating film uh, uh, for the same reasons that uh, you two did as well. I, I, I think it's something very... It, it, being able to write like that and to be able to make the film, uh, put the film together, the editing as well, which is complicated, of course, in, an, in a, uh, a very full of... a film full of CGI work... Um, its ability to actually poke fun but stay serious is the tightrope that they're on. And it, 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 one of the most fascinating things to me was being – I saw it with a fairly large audience – and it seemed to get a reaction. It wasn't just all young males, for example, which can sometimes be the case at those films, but this was a pretty mixed audience. And people were really getting into it in the sense of 
being really stimulated by it. And this sort of self-reflexive thing that suddenly switches direction is exhilarating in itself, that you feel a sort of reassurance with it that, that this is a really fun story and that it draws you in. And I find it fascinating about this idea that there's a lot of people who announce that, oh, they would never go to a film like that. And yet... There, when you, if you can persuade people, I mean, I find this at Sydney Studio all the time. There are people who will announce, well, they'll never come and see um, uh, any given film for, for a particular reason. And I'm always saying to them, well, you know, you can always, like, if you do it in the first half hour, you can come out and get a refund if you really hate it. Or you can just chalk it up to actually trying something that you're not yeah. familiar with and really challenge yourself. And that's exciting. I, that's what I found exciting about it, that it, it sort of touches on all those things. Whether it can continue requires it to continue to morph and, 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 and develop. And I'm, that's, that brings me some skepticism, you know, that, that there's a certain level you can get to where you have to suddenly take a new direction so we're, and we're, really reinvent it. We're going to play a clip just for your benefit. I, I, I feel like maybe I should make some effort to explain what these movies are. But as Randy, <laughs> as Randy suggested, it's not, not, and not an easy thing to do. So it is basically the story of a ragtag group of unlikely heroes. One of them is some kind of genetically re-engineered talking raccoon who is voiced by Bradley Cooper, brilliantly voiced by Bradley Cooper. Uh, uh, Chris Pratt, one of the many Chris's, uh, if you watched Saturday Night Live last weekend, you got from Chris Pine uh, a tutorial on how to tell uh, him from uh, the three other Chris's who are in big franchise movies these days. But Chris Pratt, anyway, this particular Chris, is the uh, the male lead, uh, the self-effacing pr- protagonist, but not always self-effacing. He's a guy who also insists on being called Star-Lord, but no one seems to really want to do that. Um, uh, he's accompanied by uh, a character, uh, Kimora, right? Played Gamora. by Gamora, played by Zoe Saldana, who's a beautiful green-skinned woman. They have kind of... Uh, as as one of them suggests in this movie, kind of a um, moonlight moonlighting kind of uh, sexual tension going between them, and there's a whole bunch of other people. I won't describe them all, but I mean there's there are, uh, and, and the whole thing is done to this uh, kind of very. Uh, affectionate 70s music soundtrack. They have uh, adventures. Uh, they are, when you look at them, it seems unlikely that they can pull off anything, but it turns out they can pull off anything. Uh, lots of other uh, interesting cameos in this particular movie. We'll talk about a bunch of them. Uh, we're going to play just a little bit of a, a scene. So there's, I guess what I haven't described yet, is a character called Groot, whose only words are, I am Groot. He was deeply voiced by Vin Diesel in the first movie. Now, because of things that happened in the first movie, he's been reduced to a baby. He is now a baby version of himself. As a result, his level of comprehension is lower uh, than it has been in the past. Uh, and so what you're hearing you're going to hear right now is the voice of Bradley Cooper as the weaponized raccoon talking to the little baby tree. There's a bomb that they need to plant. It needs to be activated a certain way. And the raccoon is trying to make sure that the little baby tree understands what that way is. All right. First you flick this switch, then this switch. That activates it. Then you push this button, which will give you five minutes to get out of there. Now, whatever you do, don't push this button, because that will set off the bomb immediately, and we'll all be dead. Now, repeat back what I just said. I am Groot. Uh-huh. I am Groot. That's right. I am Groot. No! No, that's the button that will kill everyone. Try again. Hmm. I am Groot. Mm Mm-hmm. I am Groot? Uh-huh. I am Groot. No! That's exactly what you just said! How is that even possible? Which button is the button you're supposed to push? Point to it. No! Hey, you're making him nervous! 
Shut up and give me some tape. Does anybody have any tape out there? I want to put some tape over the death button. Well, that leads to an incredibly funny scene that had me laughing really, really hard in the movie theater. Uh, one of the conceits that you're hearing here also is that it's very similar to C-3PO and R2-D2 in the Star Wars movie. C-3PO is apparently able to decode the actual uh, content of beeps and boops from, C- from R2-D2. Similarly, the raccoon apparently understands very different things that are being said depending on the inflection of I am Groot. So, Rand, I don't know. Did you, did you find this movie funny? I mean, were you laughing at this movie? I did. I, I, I found it quite funny, um, and I thought it was crafty in the way that it deployed its, its humor, uh, again, by taking your expectation and dashing them against the rocks of an adverse element that's put in. So as we heard in that uh, scene we just listened into, we're constantly being dragged away from the, the immediate proposition of heroic action into these sort of eddying backwaters of procedural bickering with the characters who are just tearing at each other over silly little things. And so that's, that's one way in which you encounter a kind of dialogue that you don't expect to find among the heroes. The soundtrack that Colin mentioned, well, it turns out that the main character originally comes from Earth and that he has a, a childhood uh, and, and a mother who loved pop music and gave him these tapes that he, that he plays. So there's a, there's a grounding of sort of 70s and 80s pop music in the biographical history of the main character. But the music is also used, again, as a countermeasure against the Wagnerian strains of evil that surround, uh, you know, the bad guys. So we're sort of rocketing back and forth between the world of Wagner and, you know, hooked on a feeling. <laughs> um, and in the first film, there's a climactic moment when, uh, when Quill, the main, the main character, is, is facing off with Ronan, this avatar of great evil. And some, I forget what song plays at that moment, but it, it, a Quill suddenly starts to do this sort of shimmying disco move. <laughs> and Ronan is completely baffled, looks at him and says, what are you doing? What are you doing? Well, I'm dancing, uh, and I'm distracting you, and boom, and then he's, he's destroyed. So there's this constant injection of, uh, of, of, of irreverence and uh, of, a, of a particularly, in my, in my view, uh, American kind. And a lot of this goes back to a certain kind of very American impudence that has long, that has always been our great resource against those, those humorless, solemn uh, uh, authoritarians like I thought about that the, the old Disney uh, short and the song uh, De Fuhrer's Face we hired right in De Fuhrer's Face there, there is that kind of uh, slapdash reckless and subversive impudence that's mounted against the forces of evil that puts this ragtag crew very much in that American grain and I think they, 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 it's kind of like a reset in the movie before it gets too serious, too. And there are, there are, the technological references are always amusing to me in, well, in both these films, uh, the, the first and the second, that the technical, technological references are very sort of real now or past, immediate past, that everybody recognizes, like cassette players or on that box with the bomb. The first thing I thought was, what the hell is there an immediate explosion <laughs> button for? <Yeah>. Exactly <laughs> When is that going to be used? Right. You know? And it's really big, and it's right there. It's like you know this this sort of um, and necessitates thing. the need to find tape and a, the quest oh, for yeah. Scotch so tape. You can't give that away though. That's too much because that but, really is very funny. Uh, but but the thing the thing about it is that it also has an echo with the technology that everybody has yeah. to deal with. Like you know when you're using your computer and you get a blue screen, you know after you've been working for three hours on something, and and you hit something that totally blew everything yeah. away, and you lost all of 
of your work. It, it has that kind of quality, and it's a kind of reminder amidst all of this CGI work and all of the highfalutin ideas they're trying to get across and all of the humor, everything, is, is somehow brought to earth by the simplicity of some of these brought technological... Yeah, yeah <laughs> exactly. And I think, Rand, your point, your point is made in this, uh, the point that you made about the first movie is made in the second one. There's a moment where there's going to be complete carnage, widespread carnage, and it, it, it is set to come a little bit closer by Jay and the Americans, which is, first of all, a really great song, uh, but you're just watching all these people get killed, you know, to this really kind of enjoyable song. And it's a way of, I think, kind of keeping it in the PG-13 universe, too. There's a lot of bad things happening. Well, and it's worth, I think, pausing for a moment to talk about the nature of violence in this film. Because if we we look at, you know, all uh, the the various iterations of Marvel and DC comic book movies, there's a big range of the kinds of violence and how we're expected to to take that. Do you remember the film The Punisher? I don't think I do. Was that, I think that's a Marvel comic, um, and and, and you know, that was a relentlessly violent film in a, in a very real way with a lot of scenes of violence that are actually hard to watch. It was a it was a, a very dark film about a man who's been wronged. He becomes a superhero, although he doesn't have superpowers, and he just goes around killing bad guys in the most gruesome way. The violence in this movie is so hyperbolic, so over the top, and and so uh, choreographed that one of the characters has that that uh, that sort of floating knife. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and, and he's capable, it, it floats and it can zap, you know, 32 bad guys in a second. And the effect is sort of like Gene Wilder in, in Blazing Saddles, you know, when, when there are 20 bad guys in a, in a saloon and suddenly he pulls his gun and, like, they're all shot and you don't really see how it happens. The, the, the violence in this film, although many creatures of all kinds are killed, the violence is just a circus of playful inventiveness. I thought it was really interesting that the space, there's a couple spacecraft battles and the, the primary antagonists of this battles are flying remote ships. Drones. So you're, you're right. watching all this carnage and yet there are not physical bodies and the bodies are essentially playing a video game and doing the same kind of, ah, oh, you would do if you, you know, lost, died in your video game. It didn't have the or same Or talk about the opening scene in, in, in 2 with that beast in the background. Yeah. Talking about that, I mean, that makes sense along these lines. I I think there's an interesting parallel there with video games and the unreality and the fact that people, uh, that, you know, there's a lot of concern about how it desensitizes the sense of, of, of what real violence does. And this 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 reminds you of that that sort of you know the remoteness and the idea of drones and, and maybe being think, able why to don't we do fight something. all our wars this way? Yes. Why don't we just have proxies right. for all the humans? It's a very and, attractive yeah. thought, and I mean, in many ways, that's happening. Let the machines in, do it all over out. the place. There are examples of that. Right. I think there is a politics to that. The most repellent or offensive group of villains in this particular movie are, the, are this is this group of gold faced people led by that beautiful woman from The Night Manager, yeah. uh, who uh, don't put themselves at risk. They are It's all a big video game for them or a, a drone operation. And every once in a while, you'll see them kind of, you know, m- sort of metaphorically mopping their brows. Not that they've really done anything except sit there at a, at a console. Rebecca, I, I mean, I want all of you to talk about this. This this is a, it's a silly movie. It's a very silly yeah, movie. It's sure. a delightfully silly movie. But it's not a completely silly movie. And there, this movie, I think more than the first one, attempts to explore familial questions. Yeah. There's um, two sisters who have a problem with each other. And that's maybe worked out a little bit more explicitly in in this movie than in the first. Uh, There is a whole father-son dynamic and and the question of uh, who who are your real allegiances to, the person who is your biological parent or or to somebody else. We don't want to give too much away about that either. Um, And and lastly, this group of idiotic, nitpicking, shouting, screaming, hyper-violent people are taking care of a baby. 
And, and there's a lot done with the fact that they are taking care of a baby, a baby who needs naps, a baby who can't be left alone, a baby who can't be near choking hazards. Yeah. So, I mean, absolutely. I read a couple of articles, and you'd actually mentioned this, too, in our pre-discussion, um, that they had like a, a, a Fast and the Furious parallel, mm-hmm. this idea that the action, however impressive and grandiose, takes a backseat to this idea of family, which is more sacred than everything else. So the first movie kind of set up the idea that this motley crew were going to develop into their own family, whereas this one sort of invited in more biological ties of family and how that compares to the friendship that they formed that's now turned into this family unit because uh, in many ways because they have to deal with baby Groot it's turned them all into parents and you see that he gets lovingly passed around to each of them they all have their own little relationship with him but they all still have to step up and discipline him there's a post-credit scenes where Groot has matured into a teenager so you know you do get the sense that their idea of family is changing Throughout both movies, I mean, I do think that that's the thread that connects the two is that there is that, you know, in the beginning, they're all strangers that don't get along and their banter is really serious. And now the banter seems more playful. The issues they're addressing are more issues that a family unit would come up with. But then again, that's juxtaposed with the idea that they all, to some extent, need to know where they came from. Peter doesn't know who his father is. That's a huge issue for him. Gamora and Nebula have an issue with their father. It's this, this idea of uh, the patriarchy really looming large over everything and everyone trying to define how they're related to it. It's. But it, Rand, you thought, was there maybe some cost to the, the, the flipness of the original one as this movie tries maybe a little bit more seriously to delve into these sorts of human questions? Do we, do we lose anything in that process? You know, I, I thought we did, actually. I, I preferred the first one, but it was it was hard for me to know whether... I preferred it because the second one was just more of the same or because the second one departed from what the first one did. I mean, there's a certain kind of basic joke that gets played in this film over and over again of the kind that I've, I've been outlining in its, in its insistence on, in the way, the laughter-provoking way that it meets the sort of pretensions of its own genre with a subversive counterpatter. And, um, and it, it, it always you know, gets a laugh doing that. But as James said, well, you know, how many, how many movies of that are, are you going to do? The second one also involves Quill, the main character, in this sort of search for bio dad. And it, in, in the process, it engages levels of earnestness that I, th- I think that the first one didn't. And um, and I, d- I actually didn't like that. I, I preferred it to be. I preferred this. I preferred the first one because it. I don't know. It didn't. It didn't try to get us and onto a plane where we were going to be taking relationships seriously in the way the second one did. And I or having I relationships be the plot. I mean, right. that really is the central idea of this movie: is family relationships and the difficulty of family relationships without giving too much away. So I think to shift mm-hmm. and make that the focus, the primary focus of the movie, as opposed to something that's kind of happening in the background in the first right. movie, you know, you do lose a little bit of that for sure. There were moments in the second one that I thought were, were brilliant. Yeah, funnier. I think <laughs> we're, singular we're really, moments were funnier than the first one. But yes. as a whole, the first movie was probably a little bit funnier right. as a film. Well, I, I think the, 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 the new one is trying to do something much more complex that is trying to relate actually origin, who you are in a way that the characters, what is their, is sort of like your birth origin yeah. and your, your cultural origin um, and trying to s- sort of see it as something different from the sort of or- uh, the, the support you get from camaraderie and, and, the, and a mentor. And you know the whole jokes about daddy and, and things like that that that, that are really um, they're they're fundamentally important as well as knowing your biological origin. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the 
first movie, it, it, it didn't really get to that sort of complex level. And so I actually liked the second one better for doing that for because it had that, it, 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 it had that sense of being on the edge of where these things are going because there are so many variations on family, mm-hmm. so many variations on you know wh- who, who belongs and who doesn't belong. Is there even a need for the sense of what is a belonging can you actually uh, recognize where you're from but also gain your most important insights and your support from somebody you're not related to? And that was uh, yeah. th- that develops in this movie really well. And the and idea that it's not a closed group either. This exactly, is a group that yes, they're willing to bring new members point. into and new Very members that point, don't yeah. have any f- other family members. There's a new character introduced, Mantis, who's an empath. Yeah, and that's someone yeah. that they bring into their Motley crew without you know any protestation. She just naturally fits in with them. And there's right. no like, well, this is our family and you're where do you fit in? It just yeah. organically expands I, to include her. I don't her. think it's giving away too much to say that the lesson James just described is delivered in part by... I, uh, a cleverly unsettling performance by Kurt Russell yes. as as the the bio dad. Yes, ego. And he has a special <laughs> who's called ego, and uh, and he appears first. We think as the uh, salvational answer to Quill's quest for a father. But there are little signs from early on that it's not going to proceed that way, and and those signs are built in in unsettling ways. In uh, in small details yeah. that make us think, oh, uh, you know, I, I think Kurt Russell's character is even, not even, as good as he seems. Even his looks, I mean, his Farrah Fawcett hair yes. and stuff like and that. He yeah, lands like... in this spaceship that that <laughs> is described in the film as an egg, but it looks like a sort of giant room air freshener. I mean, I balked when they said his name was Ego. Right. I was right. like, oh, come now. <laughs> well, I, yeah, not to get too serious about this movie or these movies in general, but you know, Rand, I think another thing that these movies do, movies like this, and I think you could put. I, actually, we had Adam Gopnik on the show on Monday from the New Yorker and so I was rereading a lot of Adam Kotnick to get ready and I went way, way back and found something that he wrote about the Fast and the Furious mm. franchise and how it ties into, tied in at that moment to President Obama's message because uh, in each case, um, it was a question about this is who we are. Who are we? You know, this is who we are. We are this group of people. Um, in these movies, I, I think they, they do make an argument that uh, at a time when I think people are a little bit confused about typical institutions to which they might append themselves, uh, whether those institutions work. And I think as a country, we're really fragmented. We just don't trust each other. You know, it's, it's about this group of people who have decided that they are going to trust one another and that they have some kind of core value system. As ridiculous as they are and self-undermining as their dialogue are, uh, is, there's this kind of a sense that, you know, all right, so we have this group of people that we have, we're mismatched, but we're perfect matches and we will be there for each other. And, and, I don't know. Maybe we have a real appetite for that right now. Well, you know, the, these kinds of um, points in in the context of American identity tend to come back to uh, uh, an, an exuberant embrace of the motley nature of, of American society. The bad guys, you know, are all they all look al- they're all gold. <laughs> they're all they're all painted to look exactly like and and, and who does that make you think of? <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and, and and so there is uniformity on the one hand, you know, you can always in these films dichotomize uh, identities, uh, aesthetics and values. So on the one hand you have uniformity, unanimity, solemnity, power. 
on the other hand, on the other side, you have uh, a motliness to an extreme. I mean, these aren't even all humans. They're different colors. Some people are blue. Some people aren't people. They're raccoons. One's a twig. Uh, so you have the, the motley nature of, of self. Uh, you have uh, scrappy resourcefulness at, at improvising on the spot to do whatever you have to do to succeed. Um, and you have irreverent humor. So it is, again, a, it, that, that's a, a celebration of, of an American sense of self. And Sounds like Hamilton, yeah. just like it my does. country. I'm right. young, exactly. scrappy, right. and hungry. These, these, these things are coming at a time where exactly that is threatened, that there's a group of people in power who want to uh, actually pretend that that doesn't exist and have, uh, I mean, you, you can have, you know, 20 white men decide the future of health care in the Senate and proudly show their picture on the front page of the newspaper and sort of have this sense of, the, is this real? Where do these people live? Where did they find them? Right. What and, happened? And a specious sense of beauty also attaches to these yes. false points of view, whether, <laughs> whether it's the gold people or Kurt Russell. Yes, uh, exactly. Anthony Lane, the New Yorker, these are the said perfect it, ones. it looks like he designed his, his planet after looking at it, consulting a few Yes album covers. Yes, yes. <laughs> right. We have to stop here because we're going to run out of time. I would say that we just put more egg-heady thought into a Guardians of the Galaxy movie than anybody else in history ever has, except that, as the panel knows, I got an email today, a terrific email from a guy named James Vincent, who, among other things, was able to pin down uh, Henry IV, Part Two, Act Five, Scene Five, uh, into uh, and map that onto a specific moment of Guardians of the Galaxy. So the four of us know that we're not alone, that you're out there, Mr. Vincent. Thank you. Uh, we'll take a break. We'll come back. Uh, we have a nice segue, I think, from where we are now to where we're going. All right. Uh, we're now going to talk about the eye roll that shook the world. And this will probably give us an opportunity to talk about other aspects of this past week. I mean, on the nose, we tried to talk about culture instead of about politics. It's become very difficult to do that, though. And uh, even getting ready to go see Guardians of the Galaxy, I kept looking at the front page of the New York Times and thinking, there's just this drama unfolding here right now that is as compelling as anything you can see in the nonfiction universe. It's uh, it, it's a little bit more wearying because it's real and it may affect our lives, but uh, it certainly it's is pretty stressful. fascinating. So this week, uh, one of the things that happened, uh, we'd play the clip for you, but I mean, it's kind of beside the point because it, it's a visual gag, as we say. Uh, but uh, Anderson Cooper was interviewing uh, Kellyanne Conway. He was trying to illustrate the fact that Donald Trump's explanation for, or at least the initial explanation proffered for the firing of James Comey, Comey didn't make sense because uh, Donald Trump had been had on so many occasions praised the work that James Comey had done to expose and bring to light the problems with uh, Hillary Clinton's handling of emails. Um, as he did this, uh, she, he, he played clips uh, of this, and as he did this, she finally kind of interrupted him and made some completely irrelevant remark about how well they'd done in Michigan uh, after that rally or something like that, and he rolled his eyes. Um, and and he did was a you know pretty well executed eye roll I guess we would have to say um, this got us thinking a little bit about eye rolls. There's an excellent piece in the Ringer, like a really good piece in the publication in the Ringer about other eye rolls, including one that Rebecca. Did you actually see that eye roll take oh, place? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was on the Ellen Show. Um, Giada De Laurentiis was doing some sort of cooking thing with Nicole Kidman, which alone, I mean, that sounds like the beginning of a joke. <laughs> and Giada De Laurentiis makes some comment about how Nicole Kidman's not good at cooking, and then goes on. So. Th 
basically the two started getting under each other's skin, and it all <laughs> culminates with Nicole Kidman offering the most glorious eye roll in the same breath as really shit. She she got to make her try a pizza, and Nicole Kidman goes, "To be honest, it's a little bit tough after this eye roll." And it was just a masterclass in throwing shade. It was just absolutely incredible. I'm here for the Nicole Kidman Renaissance, whatever we're gonna call yeah, it. I, yeah. I, I She's agree. amazing. <laughs> That More Nicole Kidman, please. <laughs> so, so James, I mean, one of the questions that comes up here is, is, is it reasonable for somebody who is, I mean, it's hard to even describe what Anderson Cooper's job is. He's not a news anchor the way Walter Cronkite was a news anchor. He's something else. He's also somebody who maybe came to prominence, especially during Hurricane Katrina, where he kind of was a real person, maybe in a way that a lot of other people weren't being a real person. On the other hand, from the other side of the aisle, it has been suggested, well, I mean, you know, you're you're a news something interviewing a public figure or somebody who is a surrogate for a public figure. Um, you know, where, when, did, when was it written that you could roll your eyes about something that gets said? Aren't you supposed to respond with more gravitas? So react. Well, I, I sort of think that is the kind of like, like the, 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 the look back to Walter Cronkite, whether Walter Cronkite would ever have done something like that. And I think actually now he probably would because I think the world really has changed. I, I, I don't think you can really, you know, if you're with the manipulation of news and the fact that many people who are appearing on a news program have been prepped with talking points and they have an agenda that they don't want to talk about what the news uh, staff wants to talk about. They want to talk about what they want to talk about. So it's like a chess game of exposure of things that they want to expose versus what the intent of the news uh, uh, the, the news reporter is. And I think that actually um, Anderson Cooper is a person who, I, I, I mean, the art of the eye roll, the eye roll is almost like a sort of 18th century like skill that comes, you know, it's like using your eyebrows or your, the, the, the set of your face. I mean, that example of Nicole Kidman was a perfect one because you do, as you watch it, you look at the body language and it looks like something's going to detonate yeah. within, within minutes or seconds. <laughs> and, and so it, obviously none of them have an interest in a real detonation. So uh, Nicole Kidman finds a way to use repeated like sideways glances and, and a lot of side. I mean, eye. I yeah. mean, it's not just shade; it's scorn. Yeah, it's no. absolute scorn. And I think in Anderson Cooper's case, he's showing scorn at this person who's a shill for falsehood, who's proved that she's done this repeatedly. Absolutely. She's not answering the question. So I think that if you're an an, an a reporter who's questioning somebody on screen. I, I mean, you'll look like a sort of wooden doll if you don't react to some of these things. And you could say, well, okay, suppose it was on Fox News. Well, Fox News has made an industry of, of trashing anybody that they felt that they needed to demean. And so in that universe, all of these things, all of these paradigms have changed. And I, I really think that had if, if we had Walter Cronkite around, he would not be just like sitting there like a bump on a log, sort of, you know, listening to this and say, well, thank you, Kellyanne, you know, for your insights. I can't believe the things you just said. <laughs> exactly. They don't make any sense at all. Um, well, you know, I mean, uh, Rihanna, I so you jotting something down. I want to know what that was, too. But um, the our essay we read in the Ringer invoked Darwin. And the way that James is talking right now, I'm thinking maybe this is actually Darwinian, too, in the sense that this this eye roll does not occur in lieu of sitting there in a much more grave and respectful way. It recurs in lieu of, you know, punching somebody in the face or something, right? It's something we've developed to, to do rather than do something much more ex extreme, as James is suggesting. You know, I, I think you 
when you uh, led this segment off by describing Anderson Cooper as, and this is what I wrote down, he's a news something. <laughs> I think that actually points out the problem of where we are right now. We don't really know exactly where we are. Things are changing, uh, and that includes, uh, and what's changing includes what we expect to be the default mode of engagement of journalists. There's, there's uh, been a, a daily showification of, of uh, uh, seeping out from Jon Stewart into, uh, in, into the shtick, creating a shtick, of the Anderson Cooper. Anderson Cooper is on 60 Minutes. He, he is a new something, but he's somewhere in between a Jon Stewart and a Walter Cronkite. I don't think that your only options, if you're Anderson Cooper in that situation, are either just to sit there and take it or to start mugging for the camera. What's interesting about the eye roll, when Jon Stewart, among his many, many skills, great faces, mm -hmm. excellent mugging for the camera, yeah. and he had half a dozen sort of, sort of set, silent, facial mugging responses that were devastating in a, in a satirical way. What you saw with Anderson Cooper is a tiny little, little bit of that. I think there's an argument that can be made for not doing that, but for continuing to let words, not just sit there and say, oh, that's very interesting. No, but, but you know, in a maybe Jake Tapper kind of way, you have all of your information in front of you, and you simply continue to ask one ruthless, relentless question after another that exposes this, that person. But it doesn't it work may be that mugging, It may lying. be that eye-rolling actually is, is, is a kind of way of copping out. Because well, it, I, I agree that eye-rolling is an, it's sort of like an extreme. It's kind of like the detonation in a way. I think actually Nicole Kidman did it in a relatively subtle way, but very obvious to people who were watching closely. But I do think think that Anderson Cooper's case when he he wrote I mean he really flipped his eyes up mm -hmm. right. so high that it was a very <laughs> bold gesture um, but the question is what do you do in a situation where you keep on with your information you've got all your information at hand and you keep asking the questions and the cogent questions and you talk about facts and then something totally irrelevant is the response like oh wasn't that a great rally in Michigan or something like that it, it, it's it's true that some people seeing that will see through it but I think that there's also um, I, I would say that that had it, had I had a choice in a situation like that I'd say well don't do the eye roll but you can certainly t cock your head slightly and you know sort of make it make it clear but on the other hand I think that Kellyanne Conway is an example of a very extreme shill for something that is false Definitely. and 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 a constant torrent of lies and a lot of the public, unfortunately, has trouble separating a torrent of lies from facts. And so this is, oh, you know, people will say, oh, well, that's Kellyanne's facts. You know, I mean, you know, this is They're alternative. They're alternative facts. Yeah, right. And so in the face of that, I don't know. I mean, I found it very satisfying to see that. Me I too. See, I loved it. <laughs> it was good. Like, yes, Anderson, speak well, for the people. But I don't approve of everything I find satisfying. True. <laughs> Uh, well, uh, you know, Rand, you, you I, I may be stretching a little uh, point here and, and tell me if I, I am. Uh, in the context of our discussion of Guardians of the Galaxy, you evoked uh, another moment in uh, film history. Um, and, and let me just set up why I'm mentioning this. I actually think that Rand's right, that we don't know where we are right now. We've arrived at a moment where it's very, very difficult to use old standards and practices to cover the new situation. You just have a situation where every day you're being told we're steaming towards North Korea and the next day, no, we're steaming away from North Korea. Uh, we're going to get out of uh, NATO or 
no, we're staying in NATO. Our president we, talks to us via Twitter. Right. We have we were being tweeted at all the time. We we're being told that uh, Comey was fired for one set of reasons, and then the next day we were told that no, Comey was fired for an opposite set of reasons. It's in the skill set for dealing with this. The old skill set doesn't work as well. And and so Rand, you uh, invoked this moment in uh, one of the uh, Indiana Jones movies. I think the first one where uh, Harrison Ford. Uh, is staring at this guy who's like waving knives around in this very impressive way uh, and looking very martial. And, and with a kind of shrug, uh, he just takes out a sh- six-shooter, shoots the guy, and just goes on with his business. And it's, it's a very hilarious moment for some reason. But I think the eye roll was a little bit like that, too. It's like, I don't really know. Yeah. Like, I'm, I can't engage with you this way. And I don't really know exactly how else to engage with you. I'll just try rolling my eyes and keeping on with this interview just to see what happens. Yeah, well, it's it's a perplexing moment for anyone who, like me, in a sort of old-fashioned liberal enlightenment kind of way, is still holding on or holding out for something like, ah, here's here's a position where things are going to be, where facts are going to be, I mean, you can't even use the word fact now, where facts are going to be uh, taken in, added up, assessed objectively, passed along, and, 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 and it's going to be a fair process. I mean, wh- where we are now, it seems to be, all right, you know, the other side will do its thing. And then we will we'll try to do a better thing, um, and and prevail. Um, in addition, there are there are journalists need to be, uh, you know, you need. I mean, buzz matters. The fact that people are then going to talk about your eye roll, that it's going to be tweeted and retweeted. You're you're not rewarded for doing things that come off as the old sort of stolid kind. I mean, who wants to be Brian Williams? Who wants to be Lester Holt? Uh, they, that model seems to, have, seems to have played out, but I find myself definitely wanting to hold on to something in it, and I, I think I'm um, sort of out in, in the, the bleachers with that one. I do think that it it is reflective. I mean, we don't have time. We were going to talk about a moment where Colbert brought up the Comey firing with his audience. But people are so confused right now that James Comey himself, uh, when he first saw the crawls on the TVs about being fired, thought it was a prank. Uh, he thought his fellow FBI agents <laughs> were playing a joke on him. So Wait, really? Yeah, yeah. He was yeah, he was he giving did. a speech in Los Angeles. <laughs> oh, help us! He was giving Speaking a speech in Los agents. Angeles to to <sighs> to, uh, to agents on the West Coast in the Los Angeles bureau. The Guardians of the Galaxy are hiring. Please right, exactly. take me out. Of this planet. And, and his only conclusion was, you know, that they, they were playing a joke on him, which I guess uh, meant that they got Wolf Blitzer to make the tape or something. I, I don't know. Oh but anyway, uh, we need to take a break here so we can have a little bit of time to recommend some things to you. Why don't we do that? We'll be back after the proverbial this. auditory eye rolls. Today's show was produced by Jonathan McNichol and me, Kyone Wolf, like anybody cares. Amanda Fish, what is the big deal with Amanda Fish? The part of Bill Curry was played by Sylvester Stallone, no big deal. On Monday Scramble, who knows? The world or something. Now, back to the no. All right, we are back. Uh, it's time to stop rolling our eyes and making some recommendations. So, uh, Rand Cooper, why don't you begin? Two events. A week from Tuesday on May 23rd, um, Real Artways is showing a very interesting film produced by Anthony Bourdain about Jeremiah Tower, who was the, the chef who uh, assisted Alice Waters 
with the opening of Chez Panisse. He's had a very interesting career. I'm going to be there on that night with a couple of chefs and food writers to lead a discussion of that film. So that's Tuesday the 23rd at Real Artways. The other th food-related thing, on June 17th, there's a huge wine and food festival. It's a fundraiser in West Hartford. Um, it's they're going to be 40 restaurants represented. Uh, Master Sommelier is going to be there. It's it's going a great event. I think you can Google, um, you can search West Hartford Wine and Food Festival. That's on Saturday, June 17th. Huge event, very tasty. I, I have to just quickly say, as you may remember, I did a thing on stage uh, at one point with both Alice Waters and the Anthony Bourdain, and Alice Waters became very upset by, by the idea that people liked Anthony Bourdain and this, the other guy on stage, Duff Gold Goldman, better than they liked her. She's obviously a very serious person and very serious about organic food and certain kinds of cooking. And uh, we had to kind of mollify her during in the green room at intermission because just, no people like you too, and uh, so it's kind of interesting. You She's going to need a lot of mollifying after this film. Oh, really? Yeah, because okay. the, the film essentially alleges that Alice Waters took all of the credit for stuff that Jeremiah Tower did. Ooh. All right. Uh, well, that sounds great. <laughs> <laughs> Very interesting. James, what have you got for us? Um, two things. Um, one is uh, the uh, I just wanted to uh, remind people, mostly east of the river, I guess, that the Storrs Farm Market is back on the green near the town hall. And a particular uh, appreciation for Brian and Anita, who run Tobacco Road Farm in Lebanon, who come to that market with an incredible array of wonderful vegetables. This is on Saturdays? Yes, yeah. it's on uh, on on Saturdays uh, in the afternoon at three o'clock, three till six on the green, in Mansfield, uh, just right on one ninety five, right near the post office, and 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 right on the front lawn of Town Hall. Really amazing, um, and so we love the. We love the produce and we love the market. Um, and one other thing, just apropos of I, I've been paying attention somewhat more to the reconstruction possibilities in Hartford related to the highway changes and so on. And I've been reading a book called Dream Cities by Wade Graham, which is a really fascinating insight about the history of cities and how they got constructed and thinking how you know, this is something to be aware of now that there's a chance to actually reconsider all of the damage that was done to Hartford and try and knit it back together. So fascinating book, Dream Cities by Wade Graham. We should probably uh, add to that that it was revealed this week that um, that one of Radiohead's classic um, covers is apparently based on the I-84, I-91 interchange. It's OK, okay Computer uh, cover is based on the I-84, I-91. It's just kind of an altered photograph of it, I, I think. And, uh, of course, that, that interchange will not be here, at least not in its current configuration after the stuff that you're talking about. So kind of interesting as well. Can you just, I, I just want, I want to plug something for you because I thought you would do it. This Annette Benning movie that hardly anybody got to see the first time around is up oh, at Sydney yes, Studio. Uh, that, What's that, it? It's called 20th Century Women? 20th Century Women. Uh, Annette Benning um, uh, and Greta Gerwig in, uh, are in it. It's an amazing film uh, by Mike Mills who did Beginners. Mm -hmm. um, it's just playing two days. Um, it's playing t uh, tonight at 7.30 and 2.30 and 7.30 tomorrow. That, it really is a wonderful film. I really do film. want to see it. Very good film. Rebecca, what have you got? So I am really, really loving Dear White People on Netflix. Highly recommend. You'll learn something. You'll laugh. You'll cry. It's fantastic. It's directed by Justin Simeon, who also directed the movie of the same name. Highly recommend for everyone of all ages. I'm going to watch it with my 86-year-old grandmother and my mother tonight. So nobody is too old or too young for this. It's fantastic. Well, maybe too young. Um, and my other thing, you'll be maybe anyone out there knows what a science fiction nerd I am. Surprised to hear this, but I just picked up Neil Gaiman for the first time this year and read American Gods in anticipation of the show, which is also excellent. Highly recommend. I'm now reading his collection of short stories called Smoke and Mirrors that I'm really, really enjoying. He's really clever, really funny, unapologetically dark. So if you're looking for something to read that's you know quick and you don't have to commit to a whole novel, I highly recommend some of his short work. It's fantastic. 
All right. I'll recommend two things, too. Um, this, the first one is kind of, uh, well, it's essentially something that's on Twitter. So the critic Matt Zoller cites, uh, who is a terrific a critic mostly of television, uh, yesterday did a thing where he tweeted out about 10 uh, cultural sites that he relies on, that he uses on, and some uses for his own thinking and, and to hone his uh, analysis of stuff. And some of them were ones that I knew and some of them weren't, but it, it's really very useful. You can go, just go, it's Matt Zoller Sites, S-E-I-T-Z. Go to him, him on Twitter and just scroll down a little bit. You'll see it's it's a tweet chain, basically, of all these different, and some of them were ones that I just had never heard of, and they seem really, really interesting. And I, I'm sort of fascinated. I mean, I, I'm going to propose to my producers that we do a show about the sites that we actually use a lot. There's like four or five things that we look at that maybe most people don't look at that help us get ideas, help us uh, hone our thinking about things that we're doing. So it might be an interesting show for us to do. But his thing is terrific. And some of it's stuff that you would know. Like, But you might not have looked at the Village Voice's you know, digital site for a long time or the Guardian, uh, Guardian's culture page. The other thing I'm going to recommend, and this is a, a TV series, which I've actually skipped for the most part because I didn't like it when I first watched it. Uh, I didn't think it measured up to the movie on which it's based, and that is Fargo. However, this year, uh, Fargo is doing some really remarkable things. First of all, Carrie Coon basically owns the world that we live in right now. Yeah, she's uh, great in The Leftovers. She's also spectacular in this, in a role not unlike the Frances McDormand role from the original movie. But they're just doing a lot of interesting sort of conceits and ideas and changes. Last week, they kind of worked in kind of early, old-school-style science fiction novel writing into a plotline involving uh, Carrie Coon and added some very primitive-looking animation to that, and just the effect was really fabulous. And uh, this is giving nothing away, but this week's episode begins with Billy Bob Thornton's voice. He's not on the series this year. He was in the first season. His voice comes on, and all it is, <laughs> it's just a terrific idea. It's him doing the introduction to Peter and the Wolf, and, and he talks about which character, you know, which, which musical instrument symbolizes the duck, but instead of a duck, you'll see one of the characters in, in the series. And he goes through all the characters in the series that way. He, he introduces the musical instrument and the Peter and the Wolf animal while you are watching that particular character on, on the screen. It's a brilliant kind of meta device. So this this season of Fargo, really worth it, even if you didn't follow the first few, because I didn't. Anyway, thanks so much to uh, our panel today. They were fabulous. Uh, James Hanley, Rebecca Castellani, and Rand Richard Cooper. Uh, we'll be back on Monday with something about something. Damn berry, water berry, all the berry, wood berry, hitting on New Britain, burning. I already said that one. Avon, Farmington. Yeah, 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 yeah. Come on, the rain.